Good morning. To our visitors, we are so glad to have you with us today. We're glad that you were able to come and be with us to worship the true and the living God, and we're glad to have you. Today, we will spend our time in the second to the last chapter of the book. We've been trekking in Hosea for a while now, and we're close to the end. So please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Hosea chapter 13. Hosea chapter 13. Just to refresh our minds, I like to remind us of the background of Hosea's prophecies. At a time when the northern kingdom of Israel was divided from the southern kingdom of Judah, Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom. During this time, Israel was prosperous, they were prideful, and worshiping pagan gods. This is the feel of what's going on in the chapter. In response to Israel's lifestyle, God's message to them came through his prophet. And his prophet, it was to show how they had been worshiping idols and committing spiritual adultery. In those days, they worshiped the pagan gods of Canaan. The Canaanites believed that these gods had power over rain. They had power over harvests. And so uh, the Israelites, they, they wanted their crops to be plenteous. And so they thought they could win the favor with the Canaanite gods by worshiping them. The Israelites throughout the book turned to other gods and became allies with them instead of worshiping the true and living God. Currently, we're in the second to the last chapter of the book, but for the most part, nothing has changed. The Israelites are still being unfaithful to God by committing spiritual adultery. Despite how sinful men mistreat God, his love remains unconditional. And his love remains unconditional from generation to generation. This is the love of God, the unconditional love that bleeds through the book of Hosea. And once again, we're going to see God demonstrate his love. So follow along with me in today's passage as I read from Hosea 13. Hear now the word of the living God. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin 
more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts and I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel. For you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me a king and prince. I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. At the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death. Where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. The little ones shall be dashed in pieces and the pregnant women ripped open. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, this is your word. Your word is Precious, your word is effective. We pray that you would give illumination, give clarity, speak. 
to us individually and collectively through your word. Lord, convict us that we might confess sin. Lord, strengthen us that we might persevere. Lord, encourage us that our hearts might be lifted. Help us, Lord God, that after hearing your word, we will leave here changed people ready to testify about the goodness of God. Let us see what you are all about from your word. We ask that you would guide us along. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. This, this morning, I've entitled the sermon, Sweet Redemption. I will use four points as markers throughout the text. Now, I'm going to be moving around the text. I'm not going to flow like I, I normally do from verse to verse. Um, I think the writer was dealing with a lot of different things at different points. So I tried to, to use these, try to group the text in such a way where we're able to grasp what the writer is saying. So these markers I will use, marker number one is man is continuously sinful. We're going to see that in, throughout the text. Number two, God is all-knowing. Number three, God is just. And number four, God saves and redeems his people. In in these verses, we're about to revisit Israel's crimes and punishments once again. Consider this chapter, Israel's darkest hours before God prescribes the final episode of this book. And in chapter 14, God would once again give a message of hope for the future and express his covenant love for his covenant people. Now, Hosea's style may feel a bit disturbing. His images are in your face, right? But there's a reason for the imagery here. He knows that this is youthful. So he uses the imagery in order to grab his reader's attention because he's trying to express something to them. Now, his language is is forceful, in the way he expresses himself, but it's effective. His language is effective. And so he described God's character as wrathful and burning with anger with the desire to destroy his people once and for all. He described it in that way. But then he showed how loving And merciful, God is toward his people. So in our text, we will see some of God's characteristics in how he responds to his people. 
The first thing we should notice about the text is that we said in number one, man is continuously sinful. We see this in verse one about Israel. And FYI, sometimes Israel and Ephraim are interchangeable in the text. So when we see Ephraim, we're also seeing Israel. So Ephraim can be understood as the people of God, and it also could be recognized as a place as well. So in verse 1, the text states, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. This verse shows that Israel's depraved heart were so fascinated with self-exaltation in their selfish minds that they openly revealed their intoxicating love for self. They practiced exalting themselves, and this led to self-love, self-worship, which really, as we know, is ultimately false worship. Because this kind of worship is unacceptable to the almighty God. And as a result of their own behaviors, they committed more and more sin that were detestable to the almighty God. Here we have the covenant people of God continuously breaking God's laws and commands. You might as well consider them as good as dead to God. If they're going to step outside of the covenant relationship with God, it's as if they're non-existent. And so they disrespected God and paid no attention to his word. And they did so through Baal worship. Any other gods other than the Lord are false. False religion is a form of worship that are not worthy of God, especially the kinds of worship offered to God without a sincere heart and obedience. Anything offered in worship that is contrary to the law of God is false worship. The Lord would not accept worship that lacks sincerity. He will not accept worship that lacks humility. And he won't accept worship that lacks reverence. True worship involves the whole man. God wants our hearts, our minds, our souls. In Deuteronomy 6, 5, the text states, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Then in Hebrews 12, 28, we see the same kind of language. The, the writer advises Christians stating, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God 
acceptable worship. With reverence and with awe. Do we see God as just another person? Are we coming to him with expectation and with awe? Not knowing what God is about to do next. But knowing that he loves us. Knowing that he understands where we are in our lives and is able to do abundantly above everything that we can ask or think. And then in Philippians 3 and 3, if that's not enough, we are given this reminder for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, this is how Christians are different from the world. The world says you must believe in yourself. You must do it. You can't expect anybody to do it for you. And here, this, that, 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 that kind of theology goes against what Scripture teaches. We can't, we can't come under that umbrella. So we can't accept that. When we hear that, we have to be reminded of what the Scripture says. Put no confidence in the flesh. So, people... If we're not following the way of God, we will find even ourselves doing detestable things that please the flesh but does not please God. Why? Because we understand that pleasure feels good. We're not going to act like it doesn't feel good. We're going to deny that. No, pleasure feels good, but we have to make sure that when we are considering pleasure, we have to make sure that it's done within the confines of God's word. And so we're to always do checks and balances according to the word of God. And so they wanted pleasure. The Israelites wanted pleasure. They also wanted prosperity. They wanted the protection from anything that would keep them from having to experience misfortune. At least in this life. Israel desired these things. These Israelites wanted the blessings that only God could possess. And because they did not seek God, their pride caused them to continue in sin. Look again at verse 2, where it states, And now they sin more and more, and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss bell, kiss calves. So here we see that the sins of the people led to more and more crimes against God. Unfortunately, this is the consequences of self-gratification. 
The next thing that led to more sin is spiritual neglect and a failure to remember the very existence of the one and true God. Look at verse 6. It states, but when they had grazed, they became full. In essence, they became satisfied. They were filled. They, their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So in this case, the people became more and more satisfied with being fulfilled with pleasure and satisfaction that came from their own doing. They became prideful and arrogant and proud. And in the process, they forgot God. Christians ought to never trust in physical prosperity. But as you know, this is something we all struggle with. In many cases, we enjoy the shepherd's care and provision over us. Then we find ourselves turning our backs and forgetting the very one who have blessed us. And in doing so, we show our ingratitude. The fact that we don't give praise where praise is due, we show our ingratitude. When we don't go to God in prayer and we acknowledge him for who he is and what he has done, we're showing our ingratitude, our ungratefulness for what God has done for us and that he has saved us and continue to bless us. And so if we look at verse 10, the Lord exposes them and exposes their hope in man. The Lord said, where now is your king to save you? In all of your cities, where are your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me a king and prince. The, the Lord reminded them of their original hope, which actually was a false hope. They, they entrusted themselves to a national king rather than the king of kings. This, this too is sin. But the people of God cried out for a king and for human rulers, which is another indictment against the people showing that they preferred to put their trust in man rather than God. And in response to their wishes, God states in verse 11, I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. In other words, I gave you what you wanted. Sometimes God gives his children exactly what they want so that he might show them that that is not what they need, nor what is best. We see this a lot of times in our life, in the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ, 
we see people thinking that if they had certain things in life, that somehow having them would make life better. But the problem is what we have can be lost. And so, therefore, we must remember that we have him. And in having him, we have all things. Everything that we need. And so, again, it's a reminder not to put hope in man, nor in the things of man. And so, here, we we see that we're not to do so. We see this kind of language in Romans chapter 1. Uh, as, I, as I read uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 24, I, I want you to see these, these four words, uh, God gave them up. Sometimes God does certain things to teach us lessons, right? He allows us to see certain things. Uh, and so, so th- this is another way in saying that God is giving them exactly what they wanted. So today one might say, you asked for it, now you're going to get it, right? We've heard that before. Or you might hear, uh, you, you want it, so you got it, right? We, we've done that with our own children before. No, 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 you asked for this, so you can't change in the middle of the game. You, you asked for this, so... We use these same kinds of things to teach them lessons. Now, we might have planned all the while to correct it, right? To, to give them something that they would enjoy, help them, right? And we could see the, the, father, the father being like a parent, right? He's being like a parent even with the children of Israel. And so, now listen again to Romans uh, in verse 24, 26, and 28. And... Um, we, we, we heard this uh, in our scripture reading by our, our dear brother. Romans one twenty four. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. You see the words, God gave them up. Uh, verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And then verse 28, and since they did not fit to see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so we have two groups of people here. God allows this sometimes to happen so that he might teach his people a lesson so that they might realize that they need to come to him. They need to trust in him. They need to hope in him. But the other group, God also does this with non-believers. And so God teaches lessons in life so that the people of God might learn the divine principles set out for them at that moment because he wants all Christians to be spiritually mature, right? 
However, when God removes himself from assisting anyone, more specifically, the one who does not believe, this is not good for that person. When God gives an individual over to himself or herself, we might as well consider it done. Right? They are being prepared for judgment. The problem is we don't know that. Right? So therefore, the gospel, we must send it to all. Right? We don't know what God is doing in a person's life. We don't know where they are. And so this is another reminder to us that salvation is from the Lord. We can't save anyone. And the Lord reminds us from a couple of famous passages we've heard many times before. In John chapter 3, beginning at verse 17, it says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. In verse 19, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seeing that his works have been carried out in God. So the Lord Jesus has come as the light of the world. Those who believe in him will go to him, will come to him because they love him. They love the light. He came to save sinners through his atoning death on the cross, anyone who genuinely places faith in Christ alone will be saved. And that person's work, as the text stated, will be clearly seen and carried out in God. In contrast, anyone who places faith in himself or in anyone else other than Christ The wrath of God is being stored up for them. In other words, God would give them exactly what they have earned. He would give them exactly what they deserve. In contrast, God offers up grace. He offers up salvation and favor that comes through the Son of God, not by any works of our own. But this salvation comes through faith. And so, uh, anyone who places faith in himself or anyone else, we said the wrath of God is being stored up. We know this because of what it states in verse 12 and 13. It shows the consequences of Israel's continuous sin. The verse states, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin 
is kept in store. The pains of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. The people of God at this point still have not repented. They still haven't turned from their wicked ways. They continue holding to their sins. They should have deprived themselves. They should have starved themselves from continuing in sin, in their evil perversions, but instead they gave themselves up to it. They gave themselves into it. And then they gave up the things of God. They continue in sin. They had rather, they had rather hold to their own grotesque behaviors instead of clinging to the one and only God. Well, we, we can learn, we can learn from them and admit at the same time. That this is stupid. Right? Right? Okay. All right. <laughs> so, so we can acknowledge that this is stupid, right? Now, now we're not perfect, right? And, and, and we can acknowledge when we see something that is, that is stupid. What do we mean? We mean that what they are doing is unwise. Right? Hosea believes this. That's why in verse 13, 13, he illustrates it stating this about the people of God. He says, verse 13, the pains of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For, For at the right time, the time of opportunity, he does not present himself. In this case, does not present himself to God. The opportunities that come. He doesn't present himself at the opening of the womb. In other words, they are a reckless people making unwise decisions. And that's something we have to check and balance in our own lives. Are we doing something somewhere where it's causing us more harm than good? Are we misusing the gifts God have given us? Are we good stewards over that which God have given into our care? This is a challenge for us. And so we must decide. The next thing we should notice in the text is God is all-knowing. We're about to capture this in in verse 5 when the Lord states, It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. In other words, Israel, when when you had nothing, I provided for you. It's as if God was saying, I laid the quails down for you. It was I who rained down the manna from heaven. It was I that brought you into a land that was flowing with milk and honey, cisterns you did not build. It was I, the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt. That's, that ought to have been 
the reminders that they should have been allowing themselves to consider even at times when life was hard because God loves them. He protects them. Unfortunately, over and over again, the people of God did not recognize him for the good he had done. Instead, the people of God, according to verse 6, they became prideful. Here's a question for us to consider. Are we giving God the credit he deserves? If we are God's people and if he had saved us and redeemed us for good works, shouldn't he get the glory? This touches us all. For some of us, it's a command and for for this day forward, let's begin giving God the glory for all that which is good. For others, maybe it is just a reminder. Perhaps it's a flyover for you to continue in doing what is right in the sight of God. We have to decide where we are. The next thing we should notice from the text is this. God is just. In this in these next verses, we're going to see lots of imagery throughout the text that points to Israel's suffering because of their disobedience. They're, they're causing harm to themselves. Our God is absolutely holy and righteous. And from his divine perfection, he executes justice for all people. He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. But we must also remember that God's timing is different from our timing. In any case, the Lord responded to Israel with a just compensation plan. In the next few verses, we're going to see this over and over again. We see this in verse 3 when the text says, Therefore they shall be like the morning, like the morning Miss or like the dew that goes away early. They're going to be like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke out of a window. This verse describes the people of God in the likeness of something that vanishes. In particular, they are like dew, they're like the chaff, and they're like the smoke. All of these are pointing to the reality that this idolatrous nation would soon face the Lord's judgment. But, but like the dew, the chaff, and the smoke, they were moved from fame and importance to the unknown and the unimportant. They would disappear like vapor and vanish like Clouds. In other words, they will become an irrelevant people. This is the judgment that God has pronounced on his people. Then the Lord saw fit to describe himself. Imagine this. He describes himself not as the lamb, but as the lion. As one who is vicious, 
the one who is the shepherd have become to them in judgment like the one who preys on his victims. In verse 7 and 8, the Lord states, so I am to them like a lion, like a, a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. Because Israel continues to sin, the Lord declares this. He continues in verse 9. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. I like how the NASB translates this verse. It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Have you ever seen or been with a person that is, or even been the person that is their own worst enemy. In a sense, this is what is said about Israel. They were their own worst enemy. We can learn from them and ask ourselves the question, are we our own worst enemy? This lesson is, is a cause for some reflection. Considering we are at the beginning of the year, this is a very important question as we seek to live out this year for the glory of God. I would encourage us to at some point take some time to consider where we are in our Christian walk. We're already learning about our purpose, what, who we are as a church and what is our purpose we see this even in, in God's word that we ought to consider the truth of God. Now next, in, in verses 15 and 16, Hosea added more descriptive language, and we're almost done. More descriptive language to show how the judgment of God will come upon the people of God, and this is done mainly because of Israel's failure to respond properly. And the, the right response is repentance. They needed to turn. They needed to change. They're about to lose everything of value to them because of their constant, unbroken rebellion against God. Listen to what it states. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind. Now like this, it says the wind of the Lord shall come rising from the wilderness and his fountain shall dry up. You're going to lose it all. His spring shall be parched and it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. It's not worth it, right? 16, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. This is their modus operandi. Nothing have changed. In Psalm, just a, just a little to go back, Psalm 78 verses 8 and 17 describes them in this faction. They should not be like their fathers, 
a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. In verse 17, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the most high in the desert. And this is the encouraging point of the text. God saves and redeems his people. We see this in two verses, verse 4 and in verse 14. There the Lord states to his people in verse 4, it reads, but I am the Lord, your God, from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. We see it there. Then in verse 14, I shall ransom them. I shall ransom them from the power of shale. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where is your plague? So shale, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. These verses once again points to God's intimate, unconditional love. The kind of love that only comes from God to his people. In verse 4, God reiterates to his people how he chose them and made himself known to them. No other God had done that. They failed to remember that the Lord God had elected them and he saved them. I like how the NASB renders it. Yet I have been the Lord, your God, since the land of Egypt. And you, 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 are, not, you, you are not to know any other gods except me. For you, there is no savior besides me. It helps us to think. Are we looking to Christ for our salvation? Are we looking to him for satisfaction? We must look to Christ or we will find ourselves like the Israelites. Seeking comfort and satisfaction apart from God, independent of Christ and the Holy Spirit. In what ways are we rebelling against God? Are we reluctant to give ourselves entirely, entirely to him? And so, if you have never received Christ personally as your Lord and Savior, you, you cannot do what is prescribed today. You, you need help. To be in good standing with God, you must receive him first as Lord and Savior. By acknowledging that you are a sinner in need of God's grace, you can do so by believing in the finished works of Christ. Believe that Jesus died for your sins through the shedding of his perfect blood on the cross, and then believe that he was buried and then rose again from the grave, and this 
and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. If you believe this message, apart from anything you've done, you, you would be saved through your faith in God and in his saving works. And so, as the title says, this is what we call sweet redemption. It's not something that we have Earned, We are saved through faith in Christ alone. No works needed, no works added, just organic faith. And so there's no way of us needing to earn. And so we come to know God through faith by believing and repenting. And if you believe in him... This sweet redemption can be yours too. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you once again for this sweet redemption. We thank you for the reminders that you have given us from your word. We're able to learn from your people. We're able to grow in your knowledge and in your grace. Lord, we ask you to use your word and apply it to our lives that we might continue to grow in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.